Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Melman Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson. Thank you for setting your podcast out at 14th and G. Your host, Dean Hinkson, coming to you from Melman Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas here in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., The official tagline of this podcast is the intersection of business and politics, and I probably don't use it enough, but one of those main intersections comes through the business of feeding this great nation and the world for that matter. I'm talking, of course, about the American farmer, and farm politics is its own universe of crops and livestock, regional rivalries that cross party lines. Federal ag policy is governed by the Farm Bill. And the current five-year authorization runs out in 2023. And so this year, Congress will turn its attention to a new farm bill. And so I'm pleased to have a couple of actual farmers here to help me break it all down. Martin Barbary is a lifelong farmer with 6,000 acres in Illinois. He farms with his son. He's past president of the National Corn Growers Association. And in 2018, the president appointed him administrator of the USDA's Risk Management Agency. He is currently vice president for RIPE. Rural Investment to Protect Our Environment. And Jim Whitaker, a farmer just outside of McGee, Arkansas, where his rice farm is a family affair. They use precision land forming, flood control structures, and other water-saving practices. The Whitaker Farm won the inaugural USA Rice Sustainability Award in 2018. Martin, Jim, welcome to 14th and G. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you. Martin, Jim, you guys are farmers. Um, Martin, you've been at USDA overseeing federal ag policy at the highest levels. Set the scene for us here. How would you summarize America's farm policy? Dean, you know, I started farming back in 1974, and through the 70s, 80s, the American farm policy was was some NRCS technical assistance along with FSA, Farm Service Agency, Title I programs that provided mainly direct payments, and then Congress would fill that in with disaster payments. So that, that sort of was the farm policy up until the 2000s, and then there became a, a mood to shift away from the 2000s. Crop insurance had come into play in the 80s and was starting to grow up importance in the risk management tools that farmers used to protect their, their incomes. We transitioned away from disaster payments. We created more market-friendly Title I programs. Today, we have those market-friendly Title I programs. We have a strong crop insurance program, of which, yes, I was very proud to be the administrator of the Risk Management Agency. Uh, We were able to improve some of those programs. But at the same time, Dean, we saw a lot of of really huge natural disasters that really we hadn't seen. And so Congress stepped back in with with some of the disaster programs, the WIP, WIP Plus 2, wildfire, hurricane, indemnity programs, to boost producers through those times. So we're kind of back at a sort of a pivotal point. When we look at protecting our environment from an agriculture perspective, I think, you know, we're here at RIPE to to sort of move that conversation away from federal farm programs more to a, a climate program that, that encourages farmers to voluntarily do the practices that improve the environment. So it sounds like it's beyond We've moved beyond this era of subsidies. Maybe subsidies is a bad word. <laughs> um, disaster payments. But the government really, whether it's market forces or natural disasters, the government's interaction with the agricultural sector is really centered around risk mitigation for farmers. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. Perfect description. 
Well, that's uh, that's uh, I think where uh, where ripe comes in rural investment to protect our environment. Um, I guess if you step back and look at American agriculture, uh, the output of America's farms uh, has more than doubled since the 1950s. Productivity and output growth are steady eddy. Uh, they're they're one of the steadiest uh, economic sectors that we have. So, what is Ripe trying to do? What problem are you trying to solve for? What Ripe is is it's a producer-led nonprofit advancing a voluntary stewardship program that will provide a reasonable return to farmers and ranchers as part of a national bipartisan climate policy. You know, our policy would allow producers, enacted the way we see it, to earn $100 per acre from conservation practices that, that deliver public value. I mean, that's that's the kind of the key here is, is delivering public value and rewarding farmers for doing those practices that deliver public value through carbon sequestration, soil health, water quality, and, and other environmental services. You know, we believe farmers and ranchers, and, and a lot of scientists agree that, that agriculture is at the center of making that change to a better environment. And we believe farmers can have that pivotal role, but at the same time, they shouldn't risk their own prosperity in the process. Jim, let me get you into the conversation here. You're, uh, you're farming rice uh, out there in Arkansas. You need a crop every year. So sustainability for you, for any farmer, is important. What do you see in the right program, or what do you see in, in sustainability uh, sort of writ large here? So one of the things that I like to think about is, you know, farmers only have one opportunity a year to grow a crop. So what we're trying to actually do is mitigate the risk of their positive change. So what we're looking for is to create positive change in the environmental space climate change. And I'm not going to speak to climate change. I probably don't have the you know scientific ability. But what I will say is we have climate smart practices. A lot of farmers don't implement these practices because what they're doing is working. And if they have one opportunity a year to change the way they till the soil, change the way they plant, they fertilize, the outcome of that, they make a wrong decision, it hurts their bottom line. For example, a few years ago when we started uh, experimenting with cover crops, we only did a small portion of our farm and we saw some great benefits. But when we planted our cotton, we also grow cotton, corn, and soybeans. And when we plant our cotton, we had a crop failure. If I would have changed that practice to the entire farm, we would have probably had a financial failure as well. So farmers have to take slow steps. And what's important about ripe is we're trying to incentivize positive change. So I think farmers are are in a, in a position to really help the environment and just do the right thing when it comes to stewardship of our land. You know, that idea of doing the right thing, you know, is a sort of politically loaded, along with terms like climate change and carbon sequestration. I mean, these sort of terms all have a very definite meaning when it comes to federal politics. Martin, is that how you see it in terms of, say, the American farmers already doing the right thing when you look at the productivity and the ability to feed not only the country, but but a lot of the world. Yeah, Dean, maybe I would phrase it a little different and say that the climate programs right now, the carbon sequestration programs that are out there trying to give farmers a little return for capturing carbon, they just don't create the environment necessary nor the financial incentive necessary for producers to change their production practice to these more environmentally friendly practices. Uh, we need a boost in that, and that's what the RIPE 100 program does. It, it creates that environment for a producer to have that income. As Jim said, you know, there's, there's a risk 
to making these changes on your farm and and farmers shouldn't risk their livelihood their their family's livelihood you know to be to do that i mean we're feeding the world we're doing a great job feeding the world we 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 can do a better job of how we do it but yet a farmer needs incentive to make those changes yeah because i mean usda has a myriad of programs it has a number of programs uh that are focused on climate sustainability the participation rate across those usda programs is just about three percent the government is saying right now uh, we're going to share the cost burden with you ripe is trying to change that to a different sort of model yeah, Dean, really, the participation rate you talk about is the participation rate in these carbon programs that are sort of growing today. I mean, there's there's more participation in the USDA programs at that level. But those par- carbon programs, that 15 average payment an acre is just not making producers a change. That's I mean, $15 uh, an acre. Yeah the, yeah, the average payment's $15 an acre, and a lot of farmers aren't willing to sign up for a 10-year contract aren't willing to change practices, these programs also, which the right program will do, do not reward the early adopters who really have done, frankly, they've done a lot of the research out on working lands and, and figured out how to make these programs work, make these practices work. So, you know, they get left out of those programs. So the RIPE 100 program does not penalize early adopters. It, it's simple. We'll sign up, you pick the practice, you do it, you get paid. Jim, Go ahead. So one of the things I want to pick up what Martin was talking about, early adopters. These guys are the pioneers in the field. Um, when I look to to make a change on a farm, I'm going to seek out an early adopter So and, and also university researchers. So I'm going to pair a researcher with a program that, like Reich was talking about, whether it's cover crop or no-till, and I'm going to go find an early adopter to learn from them. So without the early adopters – they shouldn't be penalized because they are the ones on the front lines of of climate change and moving the needle faster than anyone. I love the part about RIPE and not penalizing early adopters. Uh, Some of these, uh, one of the fears with climate change and these climate policy is to, for people to take out a carbon eraser, you know, and start taking down trees and clearing forests. So then they can enroll or or start tilling. So then they can no-till and become part of these programs. We don't want that. We want them to continue being the tip of the spear leading the way. And we want to basically reward them for all their past failures and, and risk and trials that they've done. Jim, it's, talk to me about the terms here, cover crops, no-till. Talk to me about what some of these practices actually look like. What are we asking farmers to do? So, so what we're looking at, you know, we typically have three things that we're dealing with. We're dealing with the soil. Our soil is uh, topsoil and our soil, so we have soil erosion and we have soil health. And we're dealing with air, you know, greenhouse gas and and different gases that that are leaving our farms. And then we have our water, water quantity and water quality. So we're dealing with three things. And so when we look at a cover crop, that is a crop that we plant during during the winter months or the off season. And what it does is it puts down roots and the roots help hold the soil. They also pull up nutrients out of the soil and store them in a growing plant. As that plant is growing, it's going to be pulling sequestering carbon in the soil. And you're covering the soil with a green, leafy, vegetative plant. So when rain hits the soil, you don't wash during the winter months. You're not washing the soil away. One of the reasons farmers are slow to do that is because now we have all this biomass that we're having to deal with 
in the early spring to try to figure out how to plant through it, how to grow a crop in it. It changes the the whole profile of a of a farm, of a field or a soil. So it's it's like dealing with a whole different animal, so to speak. But once what we have found out that is if we can move a farmer into a practice and that practice becomes a habit after five to 10 years, then they will stay with that the rest of their career. The hardest part is the first, you know, I'd say three to five years, getting them to change and then getting them to stay with it. And that that's where this adoption rate and this success rate is so critical. And programs like this are what helps mitigate their risk and and incentivize them to, to make the change. Because farmers have been dealing with, I mean, the, the word is sustainability, uh, the ability to come back. Like you said, Jim, you got to you got to plant a crop every year. And, and farmers have been dealing with sustainability before that was an environmental term or or climate change was even talked about. You got to first of all, you got to sustain your business. I look at sustainability really in three ways, Dean. You know, number one, you have to be sustainable on your farm if, if you're not viable if you're not economically viable you you're not going to be sustainable because you're not going to be there number two you want to sustain your livelihood for your family and your community i mean many of our you know rural communities are based on an ag industry supporting those communities if we're not successful then those communities tend to fail as well Uh, but you know the third sustainability thing then is as jim talked about the, the sustainability of the soil and keeping the soil there keeping the nutrients there increasing water filtration, decreasing water runoff, you know, slowing that water runoff so maybe we mitigate flood damage from somewhat. Uh, So there's a lot of benefits to these. We just need to figure out, and we think RIPE does that, of getting these practices on millions of acres in the United States. It sounds a lot like what I learned in Boy Scouts when you you got to the campsite and uh, the, the goal was to leave the campsite better than you found it. Exactly. Uh, leave the land better exactly. than you found it. To touch on what Martin just said, when we think about sustainability, we're looking at three pillars to a stool. We're looking at a environmental, an economic, and a social impact. And for it to truly be sustainable, it has to touch on each one of those environmental, economic, making the farm more profitable, and a social, making the lives of the community and people around you better. So Martin said it very well. Who is the American farmer? Who are who are the folks? Uh, who are the folks we're talking to, and and how how is Ripe engaging them? You know, Dean. One of the big things that kind of brought me to Ripe was number one, inclusion. Uh, the Ripe program is intended to include all sizes, types, shapes, however you want to say it, of, of farmers, ranchers, let's just say ag producers in the country. So we're reaching out to everyone. We're looking for a diverse group of folks to to help us move this policy forward, to, to engage with our legislators, to engage with our ag associations, you know, and, and help, help them understand the value of what we're trying to get done and move this policy forward. That's the people we're looking for. We want farmers and ranchers to get engaged with RIPE and help us move this policy forward with both our associations and our legislators. Because, look, USDA has a history of access issues for minority farmers and others. It's got to be important to emphasize, you know, the inclusiveness of a program like this. Jim, I'm sure if, if you engage fellow farmers in this, it's I think you've sort of hinted at this. It's a change of mindset. It's a different approach, a different approach to something, you know, folks like yourself have been engaged in for generations. 
That's true. So, you know, we're creatures of habit. We learn from our dads, you know, a lot of family farms, you know, it's passed on generation to generation. So we're kind of doing, doing it the way we used to do it. And, and this is very cutting edge, moving the needle forward fast. But, you know, I think what the American farmer is looking for is we're looking for a bipartisan program that's supported by both parties that has positive common sense change. I think as a, a farmer myself, I want to be voluntary first, and I want to be have a common sense approach to it. Important about right, farmers understand it; they get it immediately. Uh, when you start talking about uh, how we're going to do these things, and it's voluntary and no early adopter penalized, the the support has been really, really overwhelming so far. Well, and for farmers too, you know, if you think about how we approach environmental sustainability, uh, whether you want to call it climate or anything else, but you know, if you have solar panels, you get paid. If you uh, buy an electric vehicle, you get paid. And it strikes me, you can't do environmental sustainability without the participation of the ag sector. And and farmers uh, deserve to be compensated for that. Yeah. And, and Dean, one of the things that farmers are used to USDA programs that are simply cost share. They pay part of the cost of, of doing a practice. They, they, they frankly pay part of, of your crop insurance. We're used to the, the cost share, and farmers have a stake in that. Farmers will continue to have a stake in that. The right program gives them that incentive to cover these costs of practice implementation, uh, cover climate policy costs that we know are going to come back and, and producers are going to pay with, with higher fertilizer, fuel, pesticide costs. So we know going forward there will be more cost to farmers from climate policy. You know, we want everyone to understand. We want the public, we want producers, we want legislators to recognize the value of a producer's total contribution basically to the environment, carbon sequestration, soil health, water quality, biodiversity. You know, the green industry, energy industry, you mentioned solar. You know, they're rewarded for their contributions. Uh, their federal program models include a, a reasonable rate of return. So we, we just want to change the mindset of producers a little bit and say, hey, we're going out here. We're going to provide you these benefits to the American public. We need a return for that to make sure we can, we can keep it sustainable. Any indication of of the reception you're getting from farmers? What are what's been the feedback so far on the 100 proposal? I, I am a farmer, and I, and I represent Ripe on a steering committee. And I think the American farmers that I have talked to, or the ones I've, I've spoken with in our state, are very receptive. Uh, they're actually excited about the the potential because they know that these things are coming. We all see that climate is on everyone's radar. The weather is getting to be very extreme, and we all understand that, that we have a part to play. I've had the benefit of visiting farms all over this country and in several other countries, and our country is leading the way, and I think we'll lead the way in climate as well. Talk to me. I, I want to ask, because this is, when you talk to policymakers and you talk about ag policy, it's hard to ignore consumers' uh, most immediate uh, interaction with the ag sector is in the grocery store. And uh, whether it's milk, eggs, uh, chicken, or what have you, uh, those prices are going up. Is that part of the story, and how does Wright account for that price stability question? You know, Dean, we don't really talk about that. Uh, we've had these conversations in the last few, just few days about this. And one of the things we, we did at Corn Growers is, is we would study the value of a commodity in a finished product on the shelf in a store. Uh, let's take that. $2, $3, now $4 box of cornflakes that's sitting on the shelf in the store. The value of the corn in that cornflake, in that box, is about $0.06 cents in that whole box. Wow. 
when I start hearing people say, well, farmers are contributing to inflation, well, we are in a very minute way, but at the same time, inflation is biting us on the other side with climate policy costs that are going to continue to grow, and we want to make sure producers are fairly compensated for that. We're talking with ag associations. We've got three big meetings just this week presenting the right proposal to major commodity associations. You know, we've done some studies. Uh, 65% of farmers, you know, support ripe at $100 an acre, even if it does mean some increased federal expenditures. Studies done by Farm Journal, very respected trust in food within Farm Journal, 76% they support climate policy that includes voluntary adoption, again, the voluntary part of RIPE, but they really prefer a payment for practices that improve water and soil health over carbon capture alone because, as we've talked about, that real value is really not there. Even the general public seems to be very supportive of this. Duke University did a study for us where 39% of rural Republicans support government spending on climate, but 93% of those same folks support government in investing in farmers to improve water and soil health. We know the, the interest is out there, and we, we just want to move this policy forward. Well, we've talked all around it, but at some point we have to address it. Uh, there's 380 million productive acres of farmland if my statistics are correct uh, at a hundred bucks an acre that adds up to a fair chunk of change even for washington dc how are we paying for it when right talks to policymakers, uh, you've got the start of the farm bill process here in 2022 you've got ag approps the appropriations for the usda what are we looking at here and how are we gauging policymakers on the question of funding this Dean, we had had a meeting yesterday with some policymakers and staff on the Hill. But number one, and, and we want to make this very clear, a key principle of, of the right program is to not pull funding from existing program buckets, but to be funded really from new dollars for climate mitigation. There's there's all talks of different programs that are going around out there now, a lot of options with near-term vehicles for to get new dollars for climate programs. Again, we know and scientists agree that agriculture is a key vehicle in improving the environment and doing these practices. So, you know, we're working to get a near-term pilot to get going. Uh, it may be in the farm bill, out of the farm bill. We don't know yet, but the larger program rolled out. Once we get everything in place, it would be a part of a national climate program package. Go ahead, Jim. So, yeah, one of the things we see or that I believe is if we truly believe that climate change is important and we truly believe that the American farmer should be a part of the solution, I think we can be a part of the solution, then we have to admit these changes is going to cost less to incentivize farmers to do the right thing. And I'm not saying they're not doing the right thing. I'm saying to completely change their operation. So it will cost less on the American economy to completely change these 380 million acres get them all to no-till, water conservation, nutrient management, cover crops, et cetera, no-till. It will cost the American people less to do that than it would to continue at the rate we're going because every dollar that we're looking at spending has a public benefit, a return on investment greater than that dollar. So I believe that this just really makes common sense in every way I look at it. It's the right thing to do to help farmers do this, and it's going to be the right thing for the American people in the long run. Dean, let me follow up on that sure. just a little bit. Jim, you know, very well said, you know, the public cost benefit. We define that public benefit as the full set of environmental recreational benefits that farmers can deliver, climate, water quality, water conservation, soil health, biodiversity, recreation. A lot of these practices benefit wildlife as well. But that value has a return of a public cost of benefit. 
federal programs are, are built on a, quote, public cost-benefit ratio. Our policies and our research suggests about a four-to-one cost-benefit ratio for the RIPE 100 program. So the value to the public is there. If you look at it that way, this is a great deal for farmers, for ranchers. It's a great deal for the American public. Well, uh, the search continues for common sense coming out of Washington, D.C. Uh, a long ways to go here, but uh, really exciting to talk to you guys here as this process unfolds. And hopefully we'll have you back here on 14th and G to do it again. And so God made a farmer, Jim Whitaker, Martin Barbary. Thank you so much for joining me on 14th and G. Thanks for listening to today's podcast, brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.